Georgia GOP lawmakers passed sweeping bill SB202 to restrict voting in Georgia on my mind. Georgia Senate Bill 202. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be talking about Georgia Senate Bill 202. Uh, if you'd like to call in, telephone number is 347-202-0317 or 713-955-0464 or 619-639-4634. Senate Bill 202 signed into law. Today is the 26th, I believe, signed into law on the 25th by uh, the governor of Georgia. As of February the 19th, 2021, state lawmakers have carried over three fields or introduced 253 bills with provision that restrict voting access in 43 states and 704 bills with provisions that expand voting access in a different set of 43 states. Note that in some cases, a single bill can have provision with both restricted and expansive effect. Completed legislative action that took place with 24 votes for the Republicans. Status passed on March the 25th. 100% progressive action that took place on 221-0325, Act 9. You can download this uh voting right bill by going to 221 SB202 enroll PDF summary a bill to entitle and act amend chapter 2 of the title 21 of the official code of Georgia a noted relating to election and primaries generally so as to revive that person uh, energy that mail absentee ballots shall may or such an application only to eligible registered electors who have already requested and been issued or voted on absentee ballots to require certain comparison to remove improper names from all mail distribution lists to provide for sanctions for violation, to provide for related matters, to repeal conflict laws for others. Um one of the things about this bill that is setting up a firestorm about this bill is in uh, Section 33. What is it about voting in America and what? Uh, why is it so difficult for black and brown and other people to vote? What is taking place is that the GOP have bit into the decision that uh, um, they got to eliminate some people from going to the poll, stop people from going to the poll, stop black people from going to the poll. How do they intend to do that? How do they intend to do that? What is it about the... Uh, voting in America. There's a center called the Brennan Center. Uh, the issues defend democracy, reform, justice, protect 
protect the Constitution? What are some of the issues that the Brennan bring to the forefront? What are some of the issues? Ensure every American can vote. Voting is the most basic right in our democracy. But many people are locked out of the process. The Brennan Center has developed bold solutions to ensure that every eligible American can cast a ballot. What is going on in America now? Why is it that 43 states, 43 states across this nation have introduced some 253 bills with provisions that restrict voting access in 43 states and 704 bills with provisions that expand voting access. All this information compiled by the Brennan, by the Brennan Center. Now, what is setting off a firestorm here now is Section 33. Section 33. 1868 said chapter is further amended by revision Section A, Code E. Section 21-24-14, relating to restriction on campaign activities and public opinion polling. Within this vicinity of a polling place, cellular phones use prohibit prohibition on candidates. From entering certain polling places and penalty as follows. No person shall solicit vote in any manner or in any mean or method, nor shall any person distribute or display any campaign material, nor shall any person give offer to give or participate in the giving of any money or gifts, including but not limited to food and drink to an elective, nor shall any person solicit signatures for any person, nor shall any person other than elected officials discharge their duties, establish or set up any table, or boot on any day in which ballots are being cast within 150 feet of the outer edge of any building wherein which a polling place is established. Um, in other words, you can't approach a person and offer them food or drink, uh, any kind of aid whatsoever that where it may be construed that you are interfering or helping them to vote some way other than going into the poll and they, you asking for help. They don't want you to give them more water. Here's the thing about it. a lot of people going to be in line. With taking place in this country, how they're cutting polling places, uh, eliminating uh, certain days that you can't vote on and all these things, what that's going to be put an enormous amount of pressure on local government officials to get people into the poll on time. And guess what's going to happen? There are going to be line and line and line and more lines, miles and miles of people waiting to vote. Here's what I say to you so far as the water and the food. 
come hell or high water, black and brown people going to be voting. Now, here's what you need to do. Bring your lunch pail. You know what your lunch pail is, don't you? Your lunch pail is a lunch bucket, whatever you want to call it. Have your water and food in there. Bring yourself a chair. Sit down. Relax because you are going to work in order to vote. You are going to work in order to vote. I'm going to play Supreme Inequality. Uh, this is in regards to by the Brennan Institution. You know that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the heart of the Voting Rights Act. And you know the Supreme Court also gave uh, businesses, as they used to say, gave them life that they are able to donate and give to whoever they want to. But anyway, let's check this out. Supreme inequality. Out. A lot of this is because of this. That's journalist Adam Cohen, author of the new book, Supreme Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. Cohen argues that the court has been a major driver of income inequality in the United States since the Nixon era, and it continues to bend over backwards for corporations today. The court is about, you know, your paycheck. It's a kitchen table issue, right? And we're not, we're not hearing anyone talk about that, and they should be. This is Brennan Center Live, a project of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. I'm Michael Waldman. This program was recorded in February 2020. Adam Cohen spoke with Melissa Murray, a professor of law at NYU School of Law and a member of the Brennan Center Board. I think it's part of our problem is not that we're just an increasingly unequal society, but people don't realize how bad it is. So why economic inequality? Um, we hear a lot of talk about it. We read in the press, you know, people talk about, well, globalization is making us more unequal. Automation, um, policies from Congress and the president. In the book, I say, you know, one thing that we're not talking about enough is the extreme role that the Supreme Court has played in this inequality. It just doesn't come up in the conversation, but I think it's a major driver. Um, and when we talk about the Supreme Court being a driver of inequality, we need to go back to 1969. And that's why the book is the last 50 years of the Supreme Court. Something very dramatic happened then. Um, uh, there was a liberal court, the Warren Court, when Nixon was elected, and Nixon ran on a campaign promise to change the court, and he was unbelievably effective in doing that. Um, part of the reason was that he was able to replace Warren himself, who was about to retire, with a conservative chief justice, Warren Burger, um, and then the second critical part of this one justice, Abe Fortas, who Nixon succeeds in driving off the court through really a lot of false accusations, exaggeration of a small ethical lapse, threatening to put Fortas and his wife in jail. Fortas, who was then the most liberal member of the court, gives up his seat, and Nixon's able to replace him. Um, and that allows him ultimately four justices in three years, and we end up with a totally different court. Now, that is the same conservative court we have today, essentially, a conservative chief justice which there's been for the last 50 years, a conservative majority. Different justices have come and gone, but that conservative court is still with us today. So why do I say that that conservative court is a major reason for the inequality in our country today? Well, 
The World Inequality Report of 2018, which is a report put out by leading economists in their discussion of why inequality has been rising in the United States, they say there have been two main drivers, educational inequality and unprogressive taxation. Well, each of those two main drivers is absolutely attributable to the court of the last 50 years. How is that? Well, uh, so this is just one little snapshot of the inequality that we have in, in just one state. The Washington Post did this uh, story a few years ago about funding inequality in Pennsylvania. And the highest spending district in Pennsylvania spends more than three times as much as the lowest spending district, which is in coal country. Um, why does this happen? And not just in Pennsylvania, but in states around the country. Well, because of two important rulings from this Nixon court that uh, was created in 1969 and 70. Um, Rodriguez v. San Antonio Independent School Board, the court had an opportunity to say that the Equal Protection Clause required equal funding across school districts, and they came within one vote, five to four, of doing it. The math is very clear. If Abe Fortas had remained on the court, it would have been five to four the other way, and we would have equalized uh, school funding. And then the second case, Milliken v. Bradley, said that you don't need to integrate schools across urban suburban lines. So Detroit, which had a heavily minority uh, population, the NAACP sued to try to get the kids there in integrated education, and they, they came. The court came within one vote of saying yes, you could have busing across urban suburban lines to integrate. You have to have it because it's the only way to integrate uh, places like Detroit. Um, but again, because Fortis was not on the court, uh, the conservatives had one more vote than the liberals, and uh, that also um, was. Projected. So those two cases are the reason, a main reason, we have such educational inequality. Now, the tax is part of the inequality. The tax rate on the rich is going down. Why is that? Well, it's not because the American public doesn't want to tax um, uh, the rich more. In fact, the, the American public voters very much do want to raise taxes on the rich. Uh, polls show that all the time. The problem is that big contributors do not. There was a time when we thought possibly we could have real campaign finance laws. And after the Watergate scandal, Congress passed a very good law. Um, the Supreme Court struck it down in 1976, or struck down an important part of it, and came up with that, you know, that incredible formulation that money equals speech, which some people say is the original sin in uh, constitutional law today. So because of that, and as we know, there have been case after case where they've opened the floodgates further, leading eventually to Citizens United and corporations can spend. Because of that, the wealthy have more control than ever before over our politics. And one of the things they wanted was to not have progressive uh, taxation. There are many other uh, areas where the court has also promoted uh, inequality, you know, the way they've ruled about unions and employment discrimination, corporate law, uh, criminal law rulings have led to mass incarceration. It's really important to remember this is what happened, but it isn't what had to happen, right? This was a politically constructed court established by Nixon. He was able to steal one seat, Fortas's court uh, seat, which uh, was a while ago now, but we all remember more recently when the Republicans stole another seat, right, Merrick Garland's seat. So it was, they were bookends. One theft of a seat created the conservative court. Fifty years later, another theft of a seat uh, uh, from Merrick Garland 
maintained the conservative majority. So it could have all been very different. We might have had Rodriguez equalizing school funding. We might have had Milliken actually creating integrated education. If this had all been different, it could have been a different America. You start with the Warren Court, and you take it as an article of faith that the Warren Court was a high watermark in the United States and certainly in the legal culture of the United States, a high watermark for progressivism. Perhaps overstated the case for the Warren Court? You might say overstated. You might say that I graded on a very easy curve, right? I just finished writing this book, Buck versus Bell, about this 1927 case where the Supreme Court not only allowed this poor young woman, uh, Carrie Buck, to be sterilized, but really actively embraced the eugenics movement. It's amazing to see just how regularly the court was not only wrong, but horrible, right? I mean, Dred Scott sues, and they say, you know, you don't have a right to sue as a black man for your freedom. And uh, I had written a book about the New Deal. FDR comes into Washington and the country is near collapse, 25% unemployment. FDR comes up with a New Deal program. The Supreme Court begins striking down the New Deal. So I would say that after all of that, yes, the Warren Court didn't do some of the things we might have wanted, but it was such a breath of fresh air and it did a lot of good. I think you were exactly right that the court has always been pro-business. I mean, if you think about the Gilded Age court, um, the trust-busting court, like they were not interested in antitrust legislation. They were actually actively invalidating it. The Warren Court is kind of a dip, and what is framed on either side is a pro-business court. But I want to push back on the kind of hagiographic portrayal of the Warren Court as being perhaps more progressive than ever. So here are a couple of issues or cases decided by the Warren Court. So Hoyt versus Florida, 1961, which upheld a state law that allowed women to be exempt from jury service. And in upholding that law, the court says that women are needed for the life of the home and domesticity and don't need the additional burden of civic participation. Um, equally problematic is a case called Bronfeld versus Brown in 1961, where the court um, allows for blue laws to be upheld, even though they have a disparate impact on individuals who observe a Saturday and Sunday Sabbath. Um, and then in Lasseter versus Northampton County in 1959 case, it upholds the constitutionality of voter literacy test, and that's only repealed through the congressional action of the Voting Rights Act of 1964. So are we making too much of the Warren Court? They did lots of great things, but they don't actually spell out why Brown versus Board of Education is decided the way it does. It doesn't give us a very clear answer for why separate but equal is a problem. It does great things, but is it as progressive as we've given it credit for? For, you know, uh, Warren Court purists like uh, like me, there were really two Warren Courts, right? There's a different Warren Court in 1962, right? So Kennedy gets two, two appointments in 1962, one of them... White, who ends up being somewhat disappointing, but but Goldberg does shift the court over, mm -hmm. right? So so there are people who say when you really want to talk about the essence of the Warren Court, you really want to talk about post sixty two. People do say that it's that post sixty two uh, court that's more more important. But no, you're right, and you could point to you know the Terry decision, right? Yeah. I mean, they, you know, and that's very much the the late Warren Court. They really uphold the you know the idea of stop and frisk, right? Mm -hmm. So no, they're not ideal. And a lot of their rulings about the poor, which I'm very excited about, because as a former poverty lawyer. 
player. We really weren't winning much of anything, so any victory is nice. Um, but yes, I was waiting for them to declare the poor as a suspect class and to mm -hmm. really get to work. Frank Michaelman uh, mm -hmm. wrote a, a very famous introduction to the Harvard Law Review uh, in 1969. He argued that there's a right to subsistence under the Constitution, that there might be an obligation of the government under the Constitution to, to give you uh, welfare. Um, so that, there were all those things they could have done. If I were a tougher grader, I would give them, yes, uh, some kind of a B, maybe. Uh, but in the great scheme of things, a B absolutely. is pretty good because the court's kind of been an F. <laughs> the court has been an F. But you're right. I, I like to think of them as an A only because um, I, I, as I look at everything else the court has done in its history, just unfathomable now that the court said before any locality in the country is going to remove anyone from welfare, they have a right to a formal hearing under the Due Process Clause. Yeah. I mean, that's a big, big deal. You're right. There are all of these other victories, and, and they're elusive and ephemeral because they go away very quickly. And I just want to be clear. I really do love the book. It's organized across a number of different substantive areas, workers, democracy, criminal justice, education, corporations. And across all of those areas, you explain in incredible detail how the court over time has really shifted to the right and toward a posture that is much more pro-business and less concerned with the rights and positions of individuals and especially the poor. And one of the places where I was sort of left wanting more is like I couldn't understand, especially given your prior work, why isn't reproductive rights part of this story? Like, because that is an area where the court's rightward shift really has had a profound impact on the poor, and poor women particularly. Absolutely, and, and gender in general not as much a part of it as it could be. Some of this was just a matter of trying to constrain, you know, the subject. And it's, as you know, such an enormous subject, 50 years of the court. And I was trying to hew very closely to um, economics. But mm -hmm. you're right, that matters a lot. Also, you know, uh, the, the gay rights decisions are also yeah. very important. I mean, all of these decisions that liberate people, liberate them economically as well. The gay rights point, um you are very down on the Roberts Court. But one high point for the Roberts Court certainly should be 2015's Obergefell versus Hodges, which legalizes same-sex marriage across the country. Justice Kennedy really loves marriage, and he makes it very clear in this opinion. He wants someone to be able to come find him if he falls in the middle of the night. Like, that's basically the, uh, the gist of the opinion. Um, <laughs> But you might argue that the veneration of marriage at a time when marriage rates are declining among most groups except the upper classes is actually a decision that gives rise to even more income inequality. So I, like, marriage is such a big part of the court's jurisprudence that it might actually feed your story. You're absolutely right. And, you know, there are so many other roads I could have gone down. That's absolutely one I should have. But I was much more, I'd say, bread and butter about when in the like in the employment context, I talked about May at Advance and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Lily Ledbetter and Jack Rose. These stories are so horrible, right, that the court five to four rejects people who have been horribly discriminated against in the most callous way and also make up the law as they do it. So I guess I, I wasn't really looking for things to give them credit for. It's just a crime that people don't know about May at events. She was the only African-American woman in uh, the catering department at Ball State University. The woman who supervised her every day, you know, used words like Sambo and slapped her in the face. And, and another white woman boasted about her, her family in the Ku Klux Klan. And they just, they were just horrible to her. And uh, she sues Ball State and it gets up to the Supreme Court. And they say, you know, that woman, the woman who slapped you and 
Sambo and all that, she's not really your supervisor because she can't hire and fire. She's not a supervisor. And poor Jack Rose also, who you know was absolutely a victim of age discrimination. Um, he got a jury award, and they just come along and they say, you know, you know the standard we use in every all those other forms of discrimination. We're just going to raise the standard for age discrimination. I just feel like I wanted to ring a bell and tell people, do you realize what your court is doing? And no one's you know in the streets protesting. So we're seeing this right now before the court, like sort of ratcheting up of what civil rights claimants have to prove. Totally. And I think we know when we read, you know, the section of the newspaper about the Supreme Court, you have to prepare yourself for what's today's hard. It's not necessarily even substantive decisions that are problematic, but decisions that actually limit access to the court. You talk about the rise of this pro-arbitration movement, which actually starts out as being a pro-worker movement, but then gets co-opted and manipulated into something that is really pro-business and pro-corporate interests, and the court embraces it wholeheartedly in that form. Right now, they are writing mandatory arbitration clauses into almost everything to the point that pretty soon, probably no one will be able to sue their employer ever, no matter what they do to them, because they'll be forced into arbitration. No one will ever be able to sue, you know, their bank, their, you know, the store that they buy things from. So limiting the option for aggregate litigation, forcing people into arbitration as opposed to actual adjudication. Um, You mentioned Italian colors which is a court case. I think it's from 2014. Is that right? So Italian Colors is a restaurant in Oakland that I used to frequent when I lived in Berkeley. And what was sort of interesting about it is like the conservative legal movement is always talking about individual liberty. Um, Interestingly, five members of the court um, are identified as members of the Federalist Society, which, if you don't know, is a debating society for conservatives and libertarians. And one of their professed credos is this commitment to individual liberty. What could be more in keeping with the idea of individual liberty than this mom-and-pop Italian restaurant in North Oakland that the court completely shuts out in favor of American Express. It's why I really ultimately feel a lot of what the court is really about is just siding with the powerful against the weak. American Express is a bigger corporation than the little restaurant, and they like the big corporation. They seem to always like the big and powerful. So let's talk about the inflection points in the book. One such moment is Bush v. Gore, the 2000 election case, which gives the presidency to George W. Bush, and in doing so, also hands George W. Bush two opportunities to shape the court, one of which is, occurs in 2005 when Justice Rehn- Chief Justice Rehnquist dies and he is replaced by Chief Justice Roberts, and then when O'Connor retires from the court in Toledo. Um, Rehnquist for Roberts is maybe an exact match. O'Connor for Alito really drives the court to the right. What other inflection points do you see in our current moment? Look at Anthony Kennedy's decision to step down. He stepped down at the absolute last moment when he could be assured that a Republican president would have a Republican Senate who would confirm a successor. Um, he does not appear to be in bad health. So that was a very conscious passing of the baton. Almost all the conservative justices managed to hand their seats off in the last 50 years to other conservatives. The liberals never do it. Bader Ginsburg, but also Steve Breyer, they, mm-hmm. they could have stepped down at the end of the Obama administration and been replaced. So, um, you know, these things add up, and, it, it, and these are reasons why that 5-4 majority has stayed in place. And you mentioned Bush versus Gore, and, you know, people look at that case and they say, boy, the conservatives all voted for the person they wanted to be president. They wanted Bush because they're 
Republicans themselves. That's true. But the other thing they were voting for is they saved the conservative court, right? If, if, mm-hmm. Gore, if Gore had been elected in 2000, he would have immediately started appointing liberal justices. That conservative court would be over. So for people like O'Connor and Rehnquist, they loved the conservative court. That was their life, and they were voting to keep it by, by putting Bush in office. What do you make of some of these proposals about changing the composition of the court, adding additional justices, imposing term limits, even changing the composition of the Senate to allow for D.C. to have two senators, Puerto Rico to have two senators, so that you might be able to change the nature of judicial appointments? My general reaction is that I'm not so interested in them, in large part because I don't think they're going to happen. You know, a lot of them require a constitutional amendment. Some of them don't. We could expand the size of the court by legislation, but it's just not going to happen, right? I, I just it happened in the 1930s. This is how Franklin Roosevelt got the New Deal. Well, he threatened he, right, he, th- he threatened to pack the court, but it was very controversial, and people hated him for doing it. Yes. It, it and, can, and now they love him. <laughs> they do. They do. It can occasionally work, but I guess where I was going to with this is I, if we had an FDR in office right now, maybe he could do that kind of thing. I think it's a distraction. I don't think we're going to get these, you know, deus ex machina, some amazing new way we're going to organize the court. Is it more important to win the presidency than it is to win the Senate if you care about the court? I like having a president. They're obviously both important, and, and it should be part of the presidential uh, candidates' stump speeches. It should mm-hmm. be raised in every Senate election. I mean, this matters to people. When you look at the inequality in our country and the fact that the middle class is hollowing out, when we read these articles about how 40% of the country couldn't come up with $400 in an emergency, a lot of this is because of the Supreme Court. The court is about, you know, your paycheck. The court as a kitchen yeah, table the court, issue. Yeah, it's a kitchen table issue, right. And we're not, we're not hearing anyone talk about that, and they should be. So is part of that just because the court is almost shrouded from the public in this kind of veil of mystery? I mean, is that part of the gap in making the case to the public? Like, most people don't know what the court is doing. I think that's right. Look at what this court is doing to ordinary working people. That's also part of the work of the court. I mean, if you read these Supreme Court opinions, even where... They are anchored by a record that is just filled with this kind of human interest story. The court kind of drains it to this bloodless disposition. You might say that the opinions, if they are public documents to be consumed, they are actually drained of any of the elements that would make them interesting to the public. That's absolutely right. The, the, the people and their stories disappear. Okay, let me take a step back. So you might imagine two ways that we could address income inequality or economic inequality through constitutional law. One might be a kind of equal protection way, which is to consider the poor a vulnerable group for purposes of constitutional law and to provide for group-based remediation. Another way might be to think of this along the lines of substantive due process and that there is a certain right to a bare level of subsistence, the kind of thing that Frank Michaelman was talking about in his Harvard Forward. Which of these two paths would you favor? Ultimately, although I see a lot of beauty in what Frank Michaelman was saying, I don't ultimately think it was a pragmatic approach. And I ended up, as I was working on the book, uh, being more attracted to the idea that the Warren Court should have uh, granted poor people status as a suspect class and mm-hmm. got, went about it that way. I don't think America is ready for a constitutional right to subsistence. How would we draw the parameters of a suspect class that is based on indigence or poverty? 
It was mm -hmm. really during the 60s that we began to even think of poor people as a class. But yeah, it's always going to be fuzzy around the edges, and a lot of this comes up with setting the poverty line, right? What is the poverty line? Who is poor? So there's, um, there, there, that's you know, not an easily answered question. Then the other part of it, though, that's difficult is that a law unconstitutionally burdens the poor, because almost every law burdens yeah. the poor, right? What I would have liked would be for the court to go down that road and do it the way the court does it, case by case, and say, this law goes too far. Peter Edelman, who is a hero in the poverty rights movement, he says, well, one of the things we could have done if we'd recognized the poor as a suspect class was go after the inequality in welfare laws, right? This is a federal program. Isn't that a violation of equal protection that people in some states are at least getting some welfare and people in other states are not? So there are ways we could have used this mm -hmm. suspect class that we, you know, we don't know exactly how it would have played out, but it would have made things a lot better. The fact that race is recognized as a suspect class is what makes affirmative action so imperiled today. I mean, the fact that the court has to review all race classifications, including affirmative action programs, under strict scrutiny is what makes affirmative action problematic right now or, or makes it risky, uh, it might actually be easier to not denominate the poor a suspect class if you wanted to create affirmative action programs, because then the government would only have to show that there was a rational basis for having the program, and that, that would be incredibly easy to establish. I think your instinct that it would be good if we started just doing more for the poor is a, is a great one because if you look at the history of um, uh, uh, when the court started ruling for the poor, there was a poor people's movement in the 60s that was very powerful. There was a welfare rights movement that was having protests around the country. Those movements, those protests put pressure on the court. I think a sort of upsurgence in what might be a kind of modern poor people's movement is in reproductive justice. Um, but interestingly, what we've seen instead is the court kind of co-opt, or members of the court co-opt the reproductive justice vernacular for its own purposes. There's also sort of the risk of having a poor people's movement or a reproductive justice movement co-opted by the court and have sort of liberal tropes used for conservative aims. The part of the book where you talk about the aftermath of Citizens United is actually chilling, like the idea of House representative senators on both sides of the aisle going down to these gifts call centers where they just dial for dollars yeah. for hours and hours and hours and they have these quotas that are put in place by the parties themselves. And so it's dramatically changed the nature of the work of Congress and also the interests that are able to attract Congress's attention. Right. It's so hidden from view, as you say, there are these private call centers right near Capitol Hill, and, and both parties have them, and members of Congress are supposed to go there for hours and hours and hours every week, and they're talking to rich people all day long, hearing what rich people want. Uh, does that affect them? Absolutely. I think underway on the far left, or it's portrayed as a far left effort, to really diversify the court, um, diversify not just the Supreme Court, but the lower federal courts as well by sort of expanding the nominees, where they come from, the schools they come from, the kind of work experiences they've had, more union lawyers, more public defenders, um, maybe less prosecutors, maybe less big law partners. Do you think that will come closer to getting us to a court that is more in line with the progressivism of the Warren court and less the pro-business court that we've seen for so much of our history? I think it could make a big difference. And what you point out is right. I mean, you know, we know that Republicans very often appoint uh, big law firm partners and prosecutors to be judges, but 
so do Democrats, yeah. right? And where are, you know, the people who are working in poverty law in Brooklyn, when do they get to be on the federal courts? They, they don't, even under a Democratic president. Absolutely. I mean, the things that we believe in as a party should be reflected in who we appoint to the courts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brandon Center Live with Adam Cohen and Melissa Murray. Please look out for Brandon Center events, follow us on social media, and sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Briefing, at BrennanCenter.org. The Brennan Center Live podcast is available on our website and wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of this is because of this. That's journalist Adam Cohen, author of the new book, Supreme Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. Cohen argues that the court has been a major driver of income inequality in the United States since the Nixon era, and it continues to bend over backwards for corporations today. The court is about, you know, your paycheck. It's a kitchen table issue, right? And we're not, we're not hearing anyone talk about that, and they should be. This is Brennan Center Live, a project of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. I'm Michael Waldman. This program was recorded in February 2020. Adam Cohen spoke with Melissa Murray, a professor of law at NYU School of Law and a member of the Brennan Center Board. I think it's part of our problem is not that we're just an increasingly unequal society, but people don't realize how bad it is. So why economic inequality? Um, we hear a lot of talk about it. We read in the press, you know, people talk about, well, globalization is making us more unequal. Automation, um, policies from Congress and the president. In the book, I say, you know, one thing that we're not talking about enough is the extreme role that the Supreme Court has played in this inequality. It just doesn't come up in the conversation, but I think it's a major driver. Um, and when we talk about the Supreme Court being a driver of inequality, we need to go back to 1969, and that's why the book is the last 50 years of the Supreme Court. Something very dramatic happened then. Um, uh, there was a liberal court, the Warren Court, when Nixon was elected, and Nixon ran on a campaign promise to change the court, and he was unbelievably effective in doing that. Um, part of the reason was that he was able to replace Warren himself, who was about to retire, with a conservative chief justice, Warren Berger. Um, and then the second critical part of this one justice, Abe Fortas, who Nixon succeeds in driving off the court through really a lot of false accusations, exaggeration of a small ethical lapse, threatening to put Fortas and his wife in jail. Fortas, who was then the most liberal member of the court, gives up his seat, and Nixon's able to replace him. Um, and that allows him ultimately four justices in three years, and we end up with a totally different court. Now, that is the same conservative court we have today, essentially, a conservative chief justice which there's been for the last 50 years, a conservative majority. Different justices have come and gone, but that conservative court is still with us today. So why do I say that that conservative court is a major reason for the inequality in our country today? Well, the World Inequality Report of 2018, which is a report put out by leading economists in their discussion of why inequality has been rising in the United States, they say there have been two main drivers, educational inequality 
and unprogressive taxation. Well, each of those two main drivers is absolutely attributable to the court of the last 50 years. How is that? Well, uh, so this is just one little snapshot of the inequality that we have in, in just one state. The Washington Post did this uh, story a few years ago about funding inequality in Pennsylvania. And the highest spending district in Pennsylvania spends more than three times as much as the lowest spending district, which is in coal country. Um, why does this happen? And not just in Pennsylvania, but in states around the country. Well, because of two important rulings from this Nixon court that uh, was created in 1969 and 70. Um, Rodriguez v. San Antonio Independent School Board, the court had an opportunity to say that the Equal Protection Clause required equal f funding across school districts, and they came within one vote, five to four, of doing it. The math is very clear. If Abe Fortas had remained on the court, it would have been five to four the other way, and we would have equalized uh, school funding. And then the second case, Milliken v. Bradley, said that you don't need to integrate schools across urban, suburban lines. So Detroit, which had a heavily minority uh, population, the NAACP sued to try to get the kids there in integrated education. And they, they came, the court came within one vote of saying, yes, you could have busing across urban, suburban lines to integrate. You have to have it, because it's the only way to integrate uh, places like Detroit. Um, but again, because Fortis was not on the court, uh, the conservatives had one more vote than the liberals, and uh, that also um, was rejected. So those two cases are the reason, a main reason, we have such educational inequality. Now, the tax is part of the inequality. The tax rate on the rich is going down. Why is that? Well, it's not because the American public doesn't want to tax um, uh, the rich more. In fact, the, the American public voters very much do want to raise taxes on the rich. Uh, polls show that all the time. The problem is that big contributors do not. There was a time when we thought possibly we could have real campaign finance laws. And after the Watergate scandal, Congress passed a very good law. Um, the Supreme Court struck it down in 1976, or struck down an important part of it, and came up with that, you know, that incredible formulation that money equals speech, which some people say is the original sin in uh, constitutional law today. So because of that, and as we know, there have been case after case where they've opened the floodgates further, leading eventually to Citizens United and corporations can spend. Because of that, the wealthy have more control than ever before over our politics, and one of the things they wanted was to not have progressive uh, taxation. There are many other uh, areas where the court has also promoted uh, inequality, you know, the way they've ruled about unions and employment discrimination, corporate law, uh, criminal law rulings have led to mass incarceration. It's really important to remember this is what happened, but it isn't what had to happen, right? This was a politically constructed court established by Nixon. He was able to steal one seat, Fortas's court uh, seat, which uh, was a while ago now, but we all remember more recently when the Republicans stole another seat, right, Merrick Garland's seat. So it was, they were bookends. One theft of a seat created the conservative court. 50 years later, another theft of a seat uh, uh, from Merrick Garland maintained the conservative majority. So it could have all been very different. We might have had Rodriguez equalizing school funding. We might have had Milliken actually creating integrated education. If this had all been different, it could have been a different America. You start with the Warren Court, and you take it as an article of faith that the Warren Court was a high watermark in the United States, and certainly in the legal culture of the United States, a high watermark for progressivism. Perhaps overstated the case for the Warren Court. You might say overstated. You might say that I graded on a very easy curve, right? I just finished writing this book, Buck versus Bell, about this 19.
1927 case where the Supreme Court not only allowed this poor young woman, uh, Carrie Buck, to be sterilized, but really actively embraced the eugenics movement. It's amazing to see just how regularly the court was not only wrong, but horrible, right? I mean, Dred Scott sues, and they say, you know, you don't have a right to sue as a black man for your freedom. And uh, I had written a book about the New Deal. FDR comes into Washington and the country is near collapse, 25% unemployment. FDR comes up with a New Deal program. The Supreme Court begins striking down the New Deal. So I would say that after all of that, yes, the Warren Court didn't do some of the things we might have wanted, but it was such a breath of fresh air and it did a lot of good. I think you were exactly right that the court has always been pro-business. I mean, if you think about the Gilded Age court, um, the trust-busting court, like they were not interested in antitrust legislation. They were actually actively invalidating it. The Warren Court is kind of a dip, and what is framed on either side is a pro-business court. But I want to push back on the kind of hagiographic portrayal of the Warren Court as being perhaps more progressive than ever. So here are a couple of issues or cases decided by the Warren Court. So Hoyt versus Florida, 1961, which upheld a state law that allowed women to be exempt from jury service. And in upholding that law, the court says that women are needed for the life of the home and domesticity and don't need the additional burden of civic participation. Um, equally problematic is a case called Bronfeld versus Brown in 1961, where the court um, allows for blue laws to be upheld, even though they have a disparate impact on individuals who observe a Saturday and Sunday Sabbath. Um, and then in Lasseter versus Northampton County in 1959 case, it upholds the constitutionality of voter literacy tests, and that's only repealed through the congressional action of the Voting Rights Act of 1964. So are we making too much of the Warren Court? They did lots of great things, but they don't actually spell out why Brown versus Board of Education is decided the way it does. It doesn't give us a very clear answer for why separate but equal is a problem. It does great things, but is it as progressive as we've given it credit for? For, you know, uh, Warren Court purists like uh, like me, there were really two Warren Courts, right? There's a different Warren Court in 1962, right? So Kennedy gets two, two appointments in 1962, one of them... White, who ends up being somewhat disappointing, but but Goldberg does shift the court over, mm -hmm. right? So so there are people who say when you really want to talk about the essence of the Warren Court, you really want to talk about post 62. People do say that it's that post 62 uh, court that's more more important. But no, you're right, and you could point to you know the Terry decision, right? Yeah. I mean, they, you know, and that's very much the the late Warren Court. They really uphold the you know the idea of stop and frisk, right? Mm -hmm. So no, they're not ideal. And a lot of their rulings about the poor, which I'm very excited about, because as a former poverty lawyer. We really weren't winning much of anything, so any victory is nice. Um, but yes, I was waiting for them to declare the poor as a suspect class and mm -hmm. to really get to work. Frank Michaelman uh, mm -hmm. wrote a, a very famous introduction to the Harvard Law Review uh, in 1969. He argued that there's a right to subsistence under the Constitution, that there might be an obligation of the government under the Constitution to, to give you uh, welfare. Um, so that, there were all those things they could have done. If I were a tougher grader, I would give them, yes, uh, some kind of a B, maybe, uh, 
But in the great scheme of things, a B Absolutely. is pretty good because the court's kind of been an F. <laughs> the court has been an F. But you're right. I, I like to think of them as an A only because um, I, I, as I look at everything else the court has done in its history, just unfathomable now that the court said before any locality in the country is going to remove anyone from welfare, they get a right to a formal hearing under the Due Process Clause. Yeah. I mean, that's a big, big deal. You're right. There are all of these other victories, and, and they're elusive and ephemeral because they go away very quickly. And I just want to be clear. I really do love the book. It's organized across a number of different substantive areas, workers, democracy, criminal justice, education, corporations. And across all of those areas, you explain in incredible detail how the court over time has really shifted to the right and toward a posture that is much more pro-business and less concerned with the rights and positions of individuals and especially the poor. And one of the places where I was sort of left wanting more is like I couldn't understand, especially given your prior work, why isn't reproductive rights part of this story? Like, because that is an area where the court's rightward shift really has had a profound impact on the poor and poor women particularly. Absolutely. And, and gender in general not as much a part of it as it could be. Some of this was just a matter of trying to constrain, you know, the subject. And it, as you know, such an enormous subject, 50 years of the court. And I was trying to hew very closely to um, economics. But mm -hmm. you're right, that matters a lot. Also, you know, uh, the, the gay rights decisions are also yeah. very important. I mean, all of these decisions that liberate people, liberate them economically as well. The gay rights point, um, you are very down on the Roberts Court. But one high point for the Roberts Court certainly should be 2015's Obergefell versus Hodges, which legalizes same-sex marriage across the country. Justice Kennedy really loves marriage, and he makes it very clear in this opinion. He wants someone to be able to come find him if he falls in the middle of the night. Like, that's basically the, uh, the gist of the opinion. Um, <laughs> But you might argue that the veneration of marriage at a time when marriage rates are declining among most groups except the upper classes is actually a decision that gives rise to even more income inequality. So I, like, marriage is such a big part of the court's jurisprudence. It might actually feed your story. You're absolutely right. And, you know, there are so many other roads I could have gone down. That's absolutely one I should have. But I was much more, I'd say, bread and butter about when in the like in the employment context. I talked about Mayotte Vance mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, Lily Ledbetter and Jack Rose. These stories are so horrible, right, that the court five to four rejects people who have been horribly discriminated against in the most callous way and also make up the law as they do it. So I guess I, I wasn't really looking for things to give them credit for. It's just a crime that people don't know about Mayette Vance. She was the only African-American woman in uh, the catering department at Ball State University. The woman who supervised her every day, you know, used words like Sambo and slapped her in the face. And, and another white woman boasted about her, her family in the Ku Klux Klan. And they just, they were just horrible to her. And uh, she's sues Ball State and it gets up to the Supreme Court. And they say, you know, that woman, the woman who slapped you and Sambo and all that, she's not really your supervisor because she can't hire and fire. She's not a supervisor. And poor Jack Rose also, who, you know, was absolutely a victim of age discrimination. Um, he got a jury award and they just come along and they say, you know, you know, the standard we use in every, all those other forms of discrimination, we're just going to raise the standard for age discrimination. I just feel like I wanted to ring a bell and tell people, do you realize what your court is doing? And no one's, you know, in the streets protesting. So we're seeing this right now before the court, like sort of ratcheting up of what civil rights claim to claim 
claimants have to prove. Totally. And I think we know when we read, you know, the section of the newspaper about the Supreme Court, you have to prepare yourself for what's today is hard. It's not necessarily even substantive decisions that are problematic, but decisions that actually limit access to the court. You talk about the rise of this pro-arbitration movement, which actually starts out as being a pro-worker movement, but then gets co-opted and manipulated into something that is really pro-business and pro-corporate interests, and the court embraces it wholeheartedly in that form. Right now, they are writing mandatory arbitration clauses into almost everything to the point that pretty soon, probably no one will be able to sue their employer ever, no matter what they do to them, because they'll be forced into arbitration. No one will ever be able to sue, you know, their bank, their, you know, the store that they buy things from. So limiting the option for aggregate litigation, forcing people into arbitration as opposed to actual adjudication. Um, you mentioned Italian colors which is a court case, I think it's from 2014, is that right? So Italian Colors is a restaurant in Oakland that I used to frequent when I lived in Berkeley. And what was sort of interesting about it is like the conservative legal movement is always talking about individual liberty. Um, Interestingly, five members of the court um, are identified as members of the Federalist Society, which, if you don't know, is a debating society for conservatives and libertarians. And one of their professed credos is this commitment to individual liberty. What could be more in keeping with the idea of individual liberty than this mom-and-pop Italian restaurant in North Oakland that the court completely shuts out in favor of American Express. It's why I really ultimately feel a lot of what the court is really about is just siding with the powerful against the weak. American Express is a bigger corporation than the little restaurant, and they like the big corporation. They seem to always like the big and powerful. So let's talk about the inflection points in the book. One such moment is Bush v. Gore, the 2000 election case, which gives the presidency to George W. Bush, and in doing so, also hands George W. Bush two opportunities to shape the court, one of which is, occurs in 2005 when Justice Rehn- Chief Justice Rehnquist dies and he is replaced by Chief Justice Roberts, and then when O'Connor retires from the court in Toledo. Um, Rehnquist for Roberts is maybe an exact match. O'Connor for Alito really drives the court to the right. What other inflection points do you see in our current moment? Look at Anthony Kennedy's decision to step down. He stepped down at the absolute last moment when he could be assured that a Republican president would have a Republican Senate who would confirm a successor. Um, He does not appear to be in bad health. So that was a very conscious passing of the baton. Almost all the conservative justices managed to hand their seats off in the last 50 years to other conservatives. The liberals never do it. Ginsburg, but also Steve Breyer, they, mm-hmm. they could have stepped down at the end of the Obama administration and been replaced. So, um, you know, these things add up, and, it, it, and these are reasons why that 5-4 majority has stayed in place. And you mentioned Bush versus Gore, and, you know, people look at that case and they say, boy, the conservatives all voted for the person they wanted to be president. They wanted Bush because they're... Republicans themselves. That's true. But the other thing they were voting for is they saved the conservative court, right? If, if, mm-hmm. Gore, if Gore had been elected in 2000, he would have immediately started appointing liberal justices. That conservative court would be over. So for people like O'Connor and Rehnquist, they loved the conservative court. That was their life, and they were voting to keep it by, by putting Bush in office. What do you make of some of these proposals about changing the composition of the court, adding additional justices, imposing term limits, even changing the composition of the Senate to allow for D.C. to have two senators, Puerto Rico to have two senators, so 
that you might be able to change the nature of judicial appointments. My general reaction is that I'm not so interested in them in large part because I don't think they're going to happen. You know, a lot of them require a constitutional amendment. Some of them don't. We could expand the size of the court by legislation, but it's just not going to happen, right? I, I just it don't... happened in the 1930s. This is how Franklin Roosevelt got the New Deal. Well, he threatened. He, right. He, th he threatened to pack the court, but it was very controversial, and people hated him for doing. Yes. It, it and can... now they love him. <laughs> they do. They do. It can occasionally work, but I guess where I was going to with this is, I, if we had an FDR in office right now, maybe he could do that kind of thing. I think it's a distraction. I don't think we're going to get these, you know, Deus Ex Machina, some amazing new way we're going to organize the court. Is it more important to win the presidency than it is to win the Senate if you care about the court? I like having a president. They're obviously both important, and, and it should be part of the presidential uh, candidate's stump speeches. It should mm -hmm. be raised in every Senate election. I mean, this matters to people. When you look at the inequality in our country and the fact that the middle class is hollowing out, when we read these articles about how 40% of the country couldn't come up with $400 in an emergency, a lot of this is because of the Supreme Court. The court is about, you know, your paycheck. The court as a kitchen yeah, table the court, issue. Yeah, it's a kitchen table issue, right? And we're not, we're not hearing anyone talk about that, and they should be. So is part of that just because the court is almost shrouded from the public in this kind of veil of mystery? I mean, is that part of the gap in making the case to the public? Like, most people don't know what the court is doing. I think that's right. Look at what this court is doing to ordinary working people. That's also part of the work of the court. I mean, if you read these Supreme Court opinions, even where... They are anchored by a record that is just filled with this kind of human interest story. The court kind of drains it to this right. bloodless disposition. You might say that the opinions, if they are public documents to be consumed, they are actually drained of any of the elements that would make them interesting to the public. That's absolutely right. The, the, the people and their stories disappear. Okay, let me take a step back. So you might imagine two ways that we could address income inequality or economic inequality through constitutional law. One might be a kind of equal protection way, which is to consider the poor a vulnerable group for purposes of constitutional law and to provide for group-based remediation. Another way might be to think of this along the lines of substantive due process and that there is a certain right to a bare level of subsistence, the kind of thing that Frank Michaelman was talking about in his Harvard Forward. Which of these two paths would you favor? Ultimately, although I see a lot of beauty in what Frank Michaelman was saying, I don't ultimately think it was a pragmatic approach. And I ended up, as I was working on the book, uh, being more attracted to the idea that the Warren Court should have uh, granted poor people status as a suspect class and got, went about it that way. I don't think America is ready for a constitutional right to subsistence. How would we draw the parameters of a suspect class that is based on indigence or poverty? It was mm -hmm. really during the 60s that we began to even think of poor people as a class. But yeah, it's always going to be fuzzy around the edges, and a lot of this comes up with setting the poverty line, right? What is the poverty line? Who is poor? So there's, um, there, there, that's you know, not an easily answered question. Then the other part of it, though, that's difficult is that a law unconstitutionally burdens the poor, because almost every law burdens yeah. the poor, right? What I would have liked would be for the court to go down that road and do it the way the court does it, case by case, and say, this law goes too far. Peter Edelman, who is a hero in the poverty rights movement, he says, well, one of the things we could have done if we'd recognized the poor as a suspect class was go after the inequality in welfare laws, right? This is a federal program. Isn't that a violation of equal protection that people in some states are at least getting some welfare and people in other states are not? So 
there are ways we could have used this mm -hmm. suspect class that we, you know, we don't know exactly how it would have played out, but it would have made things a lot better. The fact that race is recognized as a suspect class is what makes affirmative action so imperiled today. I mean, the fact that the court has to review all race classifications, including affirmative action programs, under strict scrutiny is what makes affirmative action problematic right now or, or makes it risky, uh, it might actually be easier to not denominate the poor a suspect class if you wanted to create affirmative action programs, because then the government would only have to show that there was a rational basis for having the program, and, and that, that would be incredibly easy to establish. I think your instinct that it would be good if we started just doing more for the poor is a, is a great one because if you look at the history of um, uh, uh, when the court started ruling for the poor, there was a poor people's movement in the 60s that was very powerful. There was a welfare rights movement that was having protests around the country. Those movements, those protests put pressure on the court. I think a sort of upsurgence in what might be a kind of modern poor people's movement is in reproductive justice. Um, but interestingly, what we've seen instead is the court kind of co-opt, or members of the court co-opt the reproductive justice vernacular for its own purposes. There's also sort of the risk of having a poor people's movement or a reproductive justice movement co-opted by the court and have sort of liberal tropes used for conservative aims. The part of the book where you talk about the aftermath of Citizens United is actually chilling, like the idea of House representative senators on both sides of the aisle going down to these gifts call centers where they just dial for dollars yeah. for hours and hours and hours and they have these quotas that are put in place by the parties themselves. And so it's dramatically changed the nature of the work of Congress and also the interests that are able to attract Congress's attention. Right. It's so hidden from view, as you say, there are these private call centers right near Capitol Hill, and, and both parties have them. And members of Congress are supposed to go there for hours and hours and hours every week, and they're talking to rich people all day long, hearing what rich people want. Uh, does that affect them? Absolutely. I think underway on the far left, or it's portrayed as a far left effort, to really diversify the court, um, diversify not just the Supreme Court, but the lower federal courts as well by sort of expanding the nominees, where they come from, the schools they come from, the kind of work experiences they've had, more union lawyers, more public defenders, um, maybe less prosecutors, maybe less big law partners. Do you think that will come closer to getting us to a court that is more in line with the progressivism of the Warren court and less the pro-business court that we've seen for so much of our history? I think it could make a big difference. And what you point out is right. I mean, you know, we know that Republicans very often appoint uh, big law firm partners and prosecutors to be judges, but so do Democrats, yes. right? And where are, you know, the people who are working in poverty law in Brooklyn, when do they get to be on the federal courts? They, they don't, even under a Democratic president. Absolutely. I mean, the things that we believe in as a party should be reflected in who we appoint to the courts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brennan Center Live with Adam Cohen and Melissa Murray. Please look out for Brennan Center events, follow us on social media, and sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Briefing, at BrennanCenter.org. The Brennan Center Live podcast is available on our website and wherever you get your podcasts.
The formal mourning has begun for the Minneapolis man whose death last week touched off a torrent of national outrage. At the same time, President Trump is facing a torrent of criticism over his talk of using the military to quell violence. John Yang begins our coverage. In Minneapolis today, the first of several memorial services across the country for George Floyd. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry knelt at Floyd's coffin. The Reverend Al Sharpton delivered the eulogy. His George Floyd's story has been the story of black folks. Because ever since 401 years ago, the reason we could never be who we wanted and dreamed to be in is you kept your knee on our neck. And across the country, a virtual moment of silence for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. The amount of time former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was seen pinning his knee onto Floyd's neck. Chauvin has been charged with second-degree murder. In Washington, Attorney General William Barr and FBI Director Christopher Wray announced new actions to address the unrest that has gripped the nation for 10 days. We've directed our 200 joint terrorism task forces around the country to assist law enforcement with apprehending and charging violent agitators. who Barr blamed extremist groups. We have evidence that Antifa and other similar extremist groups, as well as actors of a variety of different political uh, persuasions, have been involved in instigating and participating in the violent activity. But last night, protests remained largely peaceful. In Washington, hundreds marched to the Capitol past National Guard troops. At one point, some demonstrators knelt and sang. New York City protesters were largely peaceful as well. But as nighttime fell on the rainy city streets, police in riot gear moved in to enforce a curfew, sometimes by force. Dozens were arrested. Amid the chaos, a confrontation in Brooklyn left three policemen wounded, one stabbed and two shot, and their suspected attacker shot. The officers are expected to recover. The suspect is in critical condition. In Minnesota, Governor Tim Waltz ordered the National Guards of the state's western border, saying that violence from planned protests in North Dakota could spill into his state. Leaders in 32 states and the District of Columbia have deployed more than 3,200 members of the National Guard. President Trump is prepared to use active duty troops if necessary, according to Deputy White House Press Secretary Hogan Gidley, who used language usually reserved to describe potential overseas military operations. Safety and security are the number one thing Donald Trump cares about, period. All options are on the table when the lives of the American people are at stake. The idea drew new pushback last night, this time from President Trump's former defense secretary, James Mattis. In his essay for The Atlantic, the retired Marine general delivered perhaps his harshest public criticism of the president yet, accusing Mr. Trump of dividing the country. And he called the use of National Guard troops near the White House on Monday to forcefully clear crowds for a presidential photo op and abuse of executive authority. The president fired back with a tweet calling Mattis the world's most overrated general. And President Trump's support among congressional Republicans showed signs of strain, as Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska said Mattis' remarks were necessary and overdue, 
and suggested she may not vote to re-elect the president. I am struggling with it. I have struggled with it for a long time. I think you know that. I didn't, uh, I didn't support the president um, uh, in, in the initial election. Meanwhile, there's new attention on police treatment of minorities across the country. The fatal shooting of an unarmed Latino man early Wednesday morning by Viejo, California police, responding to a report that a drugstore was being looted. And a video of a Sarasota, Florida police officer pressing his knee into the neck of a handcuffed black man being arrested in May on domestic violence charges. That incident is now under investigation. In Georgia today, a video court hearing for two men charged in the February killing of Ahmad Arbery. A state investigator testified one of the accused men used a racial slur. After the shooting took place, before police arrival, while Mr. Arbery was on the ground, that he heard Travis Michael make the statement. Tonight, demonstrators are gathering across the country for another round of protests. And mayors of cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. have lifted nighttime curfews, hoping last night's calm holds. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm John Yang. As John reported, yesterday's protests in New York were largely peaceful, but did include some skirmishes between protesters and police. The NewsHour's Dan Bush has been on the ground following the protests, and he joins us now from Brooklyn. So, Dan, hello. Uh, we have been reporting on uh, police actions across the country. In some cases, uh, there's, been, uh, there've been, there's been violent uh, action taken uh, uh, by police. Tell us what you're seeing in New York City. That's right, Judy. I'm here right now in the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn, where we've seen protest activity for several days. More is expected later today in the area. You can see police behind me gathering, as well as protesters in the park. This is the scene during the day, Judy. At night, it's a different story. I was covering a protest last night uh, around Trump Tower in Midtown Manhattan. The police allowed protesters to continue marching after the 8 p.m. curfew. At 9 o'clock, however, there was a very swift and sudden change. Uh, police in riot gear rushed the crowd, and they began arresting people at random, seemingly grabbing them out of the ground, police officers tackling them to the ground. Uh, and that is sort of what we're seeing at night after people are out after the curfew. Dan, we know uh, in New York City there have been questions for a long time over the years about police, about uh, possible uh, overuse of force, if you will. What are you hearing from the protesters about what they're saying? So the protesters here in the nation's largest city, just like in other cities around the country, are out expressing their anger, uh, their frustration, their pain at the way that they're treated by police. And let's take a, a listen here at uh, one, one, one woman's comments about why she's out protesting. I want to see change. I want to see, like, you know, I, I can't go outside at night with a hoodie on and not be profiled in the South Bronx and get, you know, uh, uh, ran up on by six detective cops because they want to just search me to think, or, you know, they think I'm someone, you know, a suspect for something. It's like you have a daily fear of your life for no reason. That was a young man there, Judy, talking about his fear, his frustrations with the police. And that's what protesters are telling me here. They want concrete change. 
And just quickly, Dan, what about political leaders? What are they saying about New York? That's right, Judy. President Trump has criticized Governor Cuomo, Mayor de Blasio, for not cracking down harder. Uh, Governor Cuomo also criticized de Blasio. The mayor, however, has said he does not want the National Guard here. This city has the largest police force in the country with 36,000 officers. The mayor is saying he thinks he can get this under control, these nighttime protests, he says, in the coming days. So we'll see what happens. Dan Bush reporting uh, for us tonight from Brooklyn. Thank you, Dan. The nation's capital has been another site of large-scale protests. Washington, D.C.'s mayor, Muriel Bowser, said today that she wants out-of-state National Guard troops out of the District of Columbia. And the mayor joins us now. Mayor Bowser, thank you very much uh, for being here. Uh, we are, it's reported that people, uh, protesters, are gathering in the streets of Washington at this hour. This would be the seventh straight day of protests. Uh, you have opted not to call, uh, uh, impose a curfew, though. Why not? Uh, Judy, we are, we situationally, um, review what our public safety needs are to, to manage protests. Uh, and we have seen over the last uh, two nights very peaceful protests. In fact, uh, we have seen the number of people coming down to demonstrate in front of the White House swell quite a bit uh, ever since uh, peaceful protesters were, were forcibly moved out of the way by the federal police. So people have come down to peaceably protest. Uh, and and um, police themselves in some ways. So if they see somebody who is not there for a peaceful protest and bent on destruction, uh, we've seen the crowds deal with them. Do you get uh, some kind of advance word from the organizers of these protests about what their intentions are? H how do you get information, intelligence about what's going on? Well, sometimes um, people who are uh, who organize frequently in Washington D.C. will reach out uh, to our Metropolitan Police Department or to our Homeland Security Department uh, and give us a heads up. Other times, uh, we are listening to intelligence, monitoring social media, so that we have a good gauge on how many people are coming and how many uh, staff we need to manage traffic, close streets, and make sure people are safe. Uh, we think this Saturday um, we're going to have a, a larger crowd uh, in D.C., uh, and we'll make some determinations uh, about uh, what we need in terms of staffing uh, and if we need to reinstate uh, our curfew on that day. Who has control, uh, Mayor Bowser, of keeping the peace in Washington, D.C.? Is it the D.C. police or is it uh, the National Guard, some of the troops uh, that, have been, uh, that have come in from elsewhere? Well, you're highlighting um, the unique status of Washington, D.C. We're the capital city. We're a federal district. We're 700,000 federal, uh, we're, excuse me, 700,000 tax-paying Americans. Uh, and I'm the mayor, governor, county executive all at once. Um, but because we are not a state, um, the federal government can encroach on our autonomy uh, and bring in uh, federal forces to protect federal assets. 
uh, and that's what we see in D.C. Uh, I am uh, the, the mayor. We have a police force of 4,000 men and women who protect D.C. every single day, uh, who support First Amendment demonstrations, uh, and the police chief and, and that force report to me. So you were critical, uh, Mayor, earlier this week when President Trump, uh, it, his administration ordered the clearing out of peaceful protesters around the White House so that the president could walk over uh, to St. John's Church, uh, that scene where he had his uh, photograph taken holding the Bible. Um, and yet it is it, the, the federal government does have control over uh, over that area, does it not? Um, the federal government and everybody who works for it uh, swears an oath to the Constitution of the United States that allows Americans to peaceably protest, to exercise their First Amendment rights. Uh, and what I witnessed um, from what I could see, you know, what I think the world could see, uh, is that those people were peaceably protesting. Uh, and the specter of uh, federal police or other you know, releasing munitions to clear the way um, so the president could make a political statement uh, is abhorrent. And do you, I mean, are, are you getting a sense right now that uh, the administration is going to hold back uh, in, in some way? It's, it's uh, being prepared to deploy federal troops? Are you getting any sort of signal through your communication with the, uh, with the White House, with the Justice Department? Well, let, let me say this. Um, we, first of all, think that there is a legal question about the president's ability to call in out-of-state National Guard into the District of Columbia, guard that I have not uh, requested as mayor. Uh, and we, we push back very hard on, on that. They need to deal with, with that question, and that we think there's some other steps that the president needs to take to do that. We don't know on whose authority um, that these troops are, are acting. Uh, and this is a similar uh, question that was raised by the Speaker of the House uh, to the President uh, in a letter uh, today. Uh, what we know and has been announced by uh, the Secretary of the Army uh, is that the, the active duty military troops, Army personnel who were staged around Washington, D.C., uh, are being sent back to their home base to their, their, home, um, their home stations. And does that give you peace of mind? Are you confident they won't be called back again? I, I, we can't have peace of mind in Washington, D.C. until we have full autonomy and we're just like every other American and we become the 51st state. But you ask me if that makes me feel good, if that makes me feel secure. I don't think any American can feel secure if they watch uh, the President of the United States uh, move on American citizens with active duty military troops. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser. Mayor Bowser, thank you very much. Thank you. And we would ask all of you to please join us Friday night, tomorrow night, for Race Matters, America in Crisis, a PBS NewsHour primetime special. At the end of this difficult week, we explore this anguished moment and how we move ahead.
Over the past few days, as protesters have taken to the streets, the president's talk about using military force on the demonstrators has generated a backlash among a number of former senior military officers. The Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff have also been criticized for their actions and what they have said. Nick Schifrin has that story. Nick Schifrin has that story. Judy, that criticism has become a chorus, and unlike the last few months, it's all on the record. Take a look at this statement from James Mattis, retired Secretary of Defense. Militarizing our response, as we witnessed in Washington, D.C., sets up a conflict, a false conflict, between the military and civilian society. Former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin Dempsey, criticized the current Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper's words, writing, quote, America is not a battleground. Our fellow citizens are not the enemy. And recently retired Commander of Special Operations Command, General Tony Thomas, wrote, the battle space of America, not what America needs to hear. To talk about this, I'm joined by retired Army General Carter Hamm, who over his 38-year career commanded troops in Iraq, ran U.S. Army Europe, and U.S. Africa Command. General Hamm, welcome to the NewsHour. Thank you very much. Why is there so much criticism and fear among retired officials, but also some current officials who I'm talking about, who I'm talking to, about the idea of sending active duty troops into the United States? Well, thanks, Nick. It's a great question. And uh, in our nation, we have a long tradition, going back to the founding of the nation, of uh, concern, even expressed in the Declaration of Independence and certainly in the Constitution, a concern about the employment of federal active duty uh, armed forces within the boundaries of the United States for domestic security purposes. And so I think that's what we're seeing play out, is that that long-held tradition uh, of concern about using the military inside the U.S. The U.S. Armed Forces exist to protect the nation. They're not well-suited for policing communities. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism, as uh, Judy mentioned in the introduction to this segment, of the leadership of the military. And let's go back to Monday afternoon, evening. President Trump walks out of the White House. With him is Secretary Esper. And Secretary Esper ends up in a photo op in front of a burned-out church. Now, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, had been in that group, but he hung back while that photo op happened. Do you believe Milley was concerned about the idea of the military being dragged into politics if someone like him ended up in that photo op? So all of the secretaries of defense and chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, with whom I have had the privilege of serving, have all worked very, very hard uh, to keep uh, from politicizing the uh, armed forces of the United States for, for understandable purposes, uh, and I think largely have, have been successful in that regard. And so I think when it became uh, apparent that, uh, that, that Monday evening's events were, were intended for a political purpose, I think it was appropriate uh, for the senior-ranking officer of the armed forces to not participate in that. Do you believe over the last three-plus years it's been harder for the military to stay out of politics and be seen to stay out of politics? Well, it's always hard because the, because the, 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 the decisions uh, regarding the employment of armed forces uh, are, are, have an inherently political aspect to them. 
Uh, and so that's, that makes it quite difficult. That's, that, to me, is very different than, than uh, using the military for exclusively political purposes. So it, it is challenging even in the best of times. And I think certainly, as we've seen over the past few weeks, uh, it has been difficult, uh, uh, particularly on Monday evening, I think difficult for the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to work hard to keep from politicizing the military. You know, that trust that America has in its armed forces is well-earned and, in my opinion, richly deserved, but it's fragile. And so I think the leaders of the military, both civilian and, and military, understand that and work very, very hard to make sure that, that nothing interferes in that bond of trust that must exist between the nation and its armed forces. General, I want to take you back to uh, Tuesday after that photo op. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, wrote this memo. He sent it to the combatant commanders, the service commanders, service chiefs, and he hand wrote something. We all committed our lives to the idea that is America. We will stay true to that oath and the American people. How concerned are some military members that, that you're probably talking to that the active duty military could be asked to do something that would be against that oath? Well, there is concern. So first of all, let me talk. I, I've known Mark Milley for a long time, long before he became a general. Uh, and, and I, you know, those handwritten words, uh, that comes from the heart uh, of, of General Mark Milley. He, he, I'm confident he believes that with all of his heart and soul. And he takes very seriously the oath of office that he and every other person in uniform so that I, I think he was reminding the force, be true to that oath. That's the tie that binds us in tough times. Broadly across the force, um, I, I think there is concern. That, you know that the armed forces again are are not trained, manned, equipped, prepared uh, for employment in, in domestic uh, purposes. The National Guard is. Uh, the men and women of the National Guard of the the, the 50 states and the in the uh, the district and the territories, uh, operating under legitimate civilian control of the of the governors, uh, they they are the they are the right backstop when law enforcement uh, uh, no longer has the capacity. General, to I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. To, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've, I've only got 30 seconds. I want to ask about that point. The National Guard in the states are being led by the governors. We just heard the, the mayor of Washington, D.C., criticize the fact that the Guard in D.C. have gone from 1,200 to over 4,500. Are, are you, do you believe that uh, so many National Guard on the streets of D.C. Uh, could be a problem? Well, you know, the District of Columbia, as the mayor indicated, is a unique uh, environment. It is a federal entity. The National Guard in the District of Columbia operates under federal authority, uh, and as the mayor indicated, that uh, that she has uh, uh, questioned some of the the policy, the legal authorities for the uh, the uh, use of National Guard from other states uh, in the city of Washington D.C. That has yet to play out. It is not, however, uncommon. Uh, for the dis for the National Guard of various states to work very closely, General, uh, sorry, I'm gonna... in times of emergency. Th th thank you. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. We're, we're just out of time, General Carter Ham. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks, Nick.
the day's other news, amid the nationwide protest demanding racial justice, the state of Virginia is taking down a famous statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Governor Ralph Northam announced that the statue will be removed from Richmond's well-known Monument Avenue. He said the state can no longer showcase a cause that sought to preserve slavery. I believe in a Virginia that studies its past in an honest way. I believe that when we learn more, we can do more. And I believe that when we learn more, when we take that honest look at our past, we must do more than just talk about the future. We must take action. The Lee statue is going into temporary storage. Business closings and cutbacks during the COVID-19 pandemic have claimed another 1.9 million jobs. Today's report means that more than 21 million American workers are currently receiving jobless benefits. The number peaked two weeks ago at nearly 25 million. The head of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention voiced fresh fears today that protests drawing thousands into the streets will lead to new coronavirus outbreaks. Robert Redfield told a congressional hearing that demonstrators need to find out if they're infected. Those individuals um, that have part partaken in these uh, peaceful protests or uh, been out protesting, uh, and particularly if they're in metropolitan areas that really haven't controlled the outbreak, we really want those individuals to highly consider uh, being evaluated and get tested. Meanwhile, the British medical journal, The Lancet, retracted a sharply negative study on using hydroxychloroquine to fight the coronavirus. The data had come under growing criticism. And the United Nations warned that the pandemic is disrupting vaccinations for measles and polio and putting millions of children at risk around the world. In Hong Kong, thousands of people defied a police ban to mark the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square crackdown in Beijing. They held a candlelight vigil to remember hundreds and possibly thousands of protesters killed by the Chinese military on June 4, 1989. Police did little to stop them. We'll have more on Hong Kong right after the news summary. A U.S. Navy veteran headed home from Iran today in a prisoner deal Michael White had been held since he was convicted of insulting Iran's supreme leader in 2018. In return for White's release, U.S. officials agreed not to seek more prison time for an Iranian-American doctor who violated sanctions on Iran. Back in this country, the national... But first up, he is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian whose latest book is The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels, John Meacham. <laughs> And I just want to say, first of all, a lot of people know you from TV now, but you also write books, apparently. I do in my spare time. I see. I bet you a lot of people are not that sure about that. But I want to tell you, if you like John Beecham on TV, read his books. This guy is an amazing writer. And even if he was wrong about this stuff, it's a pleasure to read. And the book is called Soul of America. Right. My first question, do we still have one? We do. This really? Is important. We okay. do. Because, but the soul... In full disclosure, is an idea that's not about what's just best about us. Socrates, all the way through the Hebrew and the Greek, always argued that the soul was the essence of life. It was breath. 
And so in the American soul, for instance, it's not just that, oh, Fourth of July, everything is great. The soul of the country has room for Dr. King, but it also has room for the Klan. And every era is determined by which of those two forces wins out. And see, here's the thing. The Klan didn't used to be this close to the White House. That's why I worry about your... Ooh, they did optimism. No, it did, and, and I am optimistic. Even well, though not in the modern era. Yes, Andrew Johnson certainly was a Klansman. Well, in 1925, you had 50,000 Klansmen marching down Pennsylvania Avenue without wearing their masks. You had. But gov- Calvin Coolidge wasn't sympathetic to them. No, but uh, the Democratic National Convention in 1924 had 347 Klansmen who were delegates. Uh, you had an immense... Wow, is that right? Yeah, you had four million... I feel better. Okay, good. You had... <laughs> you had four... You had, Tell me other bad shit about America. Here it is, that, baby. Yeah. Now, I know you were on the air in 1866. Uh, so, um, I think it was cable access then. But yes, okay. it was the Dumont uh, But you had a president who was against the 14th and 15th Amendments, uh, who, by the way, got impeached. Uh, so we can, we can talk about that. Uh, in Andrew Johnson, you had, in, if we had been talking in 1919, 1920, you had Woodrow Wilson, who resegregated the federal government, who cracked down on 400 newspapers who disagreed with him, and who launched his, atter- who ref- launched his attorney general to, for non-probable cause raids all across America. But they were reflecting feelings in the country that were much more prevalent than they are today. Uh, I don't think about the Klan, about race. Well, the Klan was a re- the, the second Klan in the 1920s was a reflection. See if this sounds somewhat familiar. They were worried about a changing economy. They were worried about the culture shifting on them. Okay. They were worried about demographic changes. They were worried about immigration. There was a governor of Georgia who was a member of the Klan who called for guess what? Building a wall of steel to keep immigrants out. So if you want, if you think the 1920s is too far back to look at this, all right, let's go to the 1950s. For four years, Joe McCarthy terrorized America. He did so with the help, in many cases, of the press. The Hearst newspapers were kind of a Fox News of the era. In the 1920s, one out of every four Americans read the Hearst newspapers, and Hearst <laughs> supported McCarthy. It was a, there were very few voices against McCarthy early on. A woman, Margaret Chase Smith, who was the right. Republican senator from Maine, came out against him early. It took the men, as usual, four years to catch up. But what we ended up... Hey, hate men, hate men, men suck. Always an applause break in America. Men suck. But, uh, and again, I'm not Mr. Rogers on C-SPAN here. I'm not arguing (laughs) that everything is always great. But the point is, in my lifetime, in your lifetime, in my native region of the South, we had apartheid. Women have not voted in this country for quite a century yet. We are not yet at the third anniversary. It's coming up next month of the marriage equality decision. American history is, by fits and starts, has tended to get better. Why has it gotten better? Not just because of presidents, but not just because of the Congress, but because of protest and resistance and people saying the country we want is not a country that closes its fist, it's one that opens its arms. But here's the difference. In the cases you cite, I mean, Joe McCarthy was censured by the Senate, right? Yeah, four years in. Okay. The Senate's not going to censure Trump. They love Trump. I mean, what's frightening now to me is that the Republican Party has so quickly lined up behind this fascist. And they're in on it. 
And I think that's a fundamental difference. And I also think it's, it's, a, it's a flaw that the founders did not see. Oh, I think the founders saw all this coming. You, saw, think, you think they saw Donald Trump coming? And I, think they, I think they would have been stunned that it took this goddamn long for us to get one. The whole Constitution was created. And how do you think we're going to unget one? I think we're going <laughs> to... I think we're going to, un- my own sense, we're going to unget one by, I think, a pretty a wave election in the midterm. I think the courts and the rule of law is going to prevail. And I think the people themselves, and this is not a populist argument on the other side, but how did we break down Jim Crow? How did we break down uh, functional apartheid? People, how did women get the right to vote? They protested, they stood up, they had conversations like this. And ultimately, those better angels did prevail to the point where what is the immigration issue in this country? The immigration issue is that people want to come here. So for all of the having a mad king, which we do, who, as I've said to you before, if he knew who King Lear was, it would be like King Lear. (laughs) For all of that, if you have enough of these forces, the people, the press, the Congress, which is, as you say, not in great shape right now, or the presidency, the courts, if you have enough of those forces working, then we will well, survive the crisis. Yeah, but I don't know if we do. I mean, we definitely don't have the Congress. Uh, you, would know, you talk about a wave election. Yes, we could impeach him. I think the Democrats will take the House. It's, don't, get it, don't get giddy. Because... It's, <laughs> what I have to say is Hubris, not Hubris. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I have to be the skunk at the garden party here. No, but fine. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, but, You've done well with that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, somebody has to. Somebody has to. Yeah, because, here, because, thank you. But this is a... But, but let, me, let, me, let me say the skunk point. Okay. Even if we win the wave election, that's, that's the House. They will impeach him. Then you need 67 senators to convict, or else he's there. Clinton was impeached. He stayed there. Now you have a wounded animal, but not that wounded, because he'll just say fake news. He's more of a martyr than ever. You know that his approval ratings went up this week. I do. The crazier he acts. I'm not worried about a mad king. We've had presidents who didn't know shit before. I'm worried about someone who wants to be a dictator. I mean, look at this, read this statement, from, I'll read you this statement from this week on the Justice Department. A rigged system. This is his own Justice Department. Right. Did, did any other president talk like this about their own Justice Department? Why such an unequal justice? At some point, I will have no choice but to use the powers granted to the presidency and get involved. Right. Well, first of all, I don't think he doesn't know. He doesn't know what those are. No, he doesn't know what those are. No, he, know what those are. <laughs> he thinks he's a king. I mean, that's a direct threat. No. Is that... If he can get off Twitter and to Google, he might find it. (laughs) I wouldn't hold your breath for that. um, Is there a precedent for that, for a president warring on his own Justice Department the way he does, his own FBI, this deep state talk we hear about? If you listen to the Nixon tapes, yeah. And Nixon was convinced that the press press was against him, that the Justice Department was against him. He had the Saturday night. A lot of similarities. There are similarities. Except he went. But guess what? There's this fabled moment. Everybody talks about how Barry Goldwater went to the White House. Hugh Scott, I remember, yeah. You know what date that was? August 7th. Yeah, he quit the next day. 26 months into the Watergate scandal. Right. Barry Goldwater left 
public life with a, a very high profile. But it took but, 26 But again, John, what was the message that they were bringing to President Nixon? The message they were bringing was you have lost the support of the Republicans in Congress. Right. That is not a message anyone can deliver right now to this president. Not right now, but what do we know chiefly about politicians? That they want to be reelected. Right. That they are more, far more often mirrors well, than molders of public opinion. And that's what's so scary. That's why they won't turn on him, because the base loves him. And they know that, that he has a connection with their voters that they do not. That's true. But the, you have to change those hearts and minds in, uh, oh. among the people. But you really do. Guess what Joe McCarthy's approval rating was after the have you no decency, sir? I don't know. 34%. You can get 34% of the country to say damn near anything. Right. This is a battle about the 20% who either aren't paying enough attention, who are beginning to be worried about the fact that Rudy Giuliani, after a pretty clearly liquid dinner the other night, um, <laughs> don't you think? Yeah, I mean, something. Anthony Trollope yeah. used to say that he dined freely. Um, that, was, that was the Victorian code yeah. for that. Uh, you have to get to the 20% who are accessible by, and my whole argument in this, again, is not that everything is going to be a fairy tale. It never is. There was never a once upon a time, and there's never, never a happily ever after. But you can get, because you did it with women's suffrage, you did it with civil rights, we did it ultimately with the union of the country, we've done it with Those marriage equality. Issues, not not this. I don't see him leaving under any condition, including people knocking on the door with guns. But he'd be Scarface. He'd be watching on the security camera. <laughs> Say hello to my little friend. I, I, okay. I badgered you. I, don't you think he sent Jared out? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's a great book. Thank you for trying to cheer me up. No, I, um, I, uh, everybody should read it and feel better. All right. Welcome. To House Civil and Gospel Blog Talk Radio, we are taking a look at the soul of America through its history and its ups and downs over the years. The state of mind that we are in now under the presidential uh, directions of uh, President Donald Trump and the powerful sway of Republican um, social media uh, populist ideas of. Um, not to seem to be loving, and um, as they say, they are getting their chance to run the country. And it has had that on the many administrations, the Klan and all the other elements of integration, segregation, um, uh, McCarthyism, all of the elements that have tagged this country in the past. But one thing, as you listen to this program today, uh, we will be sharing gospel music with you later uh, of the words that are being said. Think about who is in charge. Not Bill Myers, not John Meacham, not President Donald Trump, not past President Barack Obama, not the Democratic Party, not the Republicans, not anybody that walks on the face of the earth is in charge of what's taking place here in America. Satan is doing it through the eyes and hearts of men um, because God is allowing them to do so. Stay focused. Stay with your first love, Jesus Christ, God Almighty, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Evil is an element of creation. Evil is an element of God's hand, 
allowing man to do whatever he wants to. Eve is the element of the creation of God's best creation, the human being, and giving him the ability to choose, the ability to choose right or the ability to choose wrong. This is where we are in America today. So stay focused and do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God is still in control. And finally, new rules. Someone has to tell me what's magic about a capital R, the kind that goes after your name if you're a Republican. Because if you have one of those, you can get away with pretty much anything when it comes to selling out, cursing out, or compromising your own country. You know... When it, when it was Hillary Clinton with an unsecure email server, Republicans wanted to lock her up. But President Trump still uses the unsecure Android phone he had before he got elected. And he has been warned that with an old consumer-grade phone like that, someone could easily hack into his Twitter account and start posting crazy messages. And how would we be able to tell? <laughs> So a couple of weeks before the Super Bowl, Bill O'Reilly asked Trump why he always defended Putin, who O'Reilly said was a killer. A reasonable question, since the last two guys who were as cozy as Putin and Trump held their bilateral talks on Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> But again, Trump took Putin's side over America, saying, we got killers here too. You think, you think our country's so innocent? If a Democrat said that before the Super Bowl, they would be in Guantanamo Bay by halftime. <laughs> Same as they would if they did this. But if you have the magic R, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Trump repeatedly said he was going to donate to military charities, then didn't, then lied about it. He compared our intelligence agencies to Nazis. Mm. He said McCain, who spent five years in a Vietnamese prison, wasn't a war hero because I like people who weren't captured. I gotta say to all you flag-waving right-wingers who always say, I'm not just gonna stand here and let you run down America. You're standing there and letting Trump run down America. <laughs> Donald Trump could go to the tomb of the unknown soldier and say, well, maybe if he'd done something, he wouldn't be so unknown. <laughs> and Republicans would be okay with that, too. When Trump said, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose voters, he wasn't making a joke. He's never made a joke. Unless his entire life is some sort of Andy Kaufman-style performance, <laughs> in which case, stop it. No, he was simply stating an actual fact for once, which is, if you have the magic R <laughs> after your name, you can drive a Hummer through a daycare center. <laughs> and Fox News will say the babies were asking for it. 
Meanwhile, in the alternative universe where a Democrat is president, Obama once said, we have not been perfect. And for eight years, Republicans screamed that he was on a nonstop apology tour. They lost their shit whenever there was a picture of him committing high crimes like not having his hand over his heart during a song or saluting with coffee in his hand, even though this guy did it with a dog. <laughs> Yeah, that guy, the one who sat frozen for seven minutes after being told the words, the country is under attack. And Republicans defended that. And we all just accept this. America is the Republican Party's bitch, and they can criticize and betray her, but you can't. Even though Obama spent two terms talking up the troops, talking up the country, how much he loved it, how in no other country is my story even possible, didn't matter. Conservatives all nodded when Rudy Giuliani said, I do not believe that President Obama loves America. As opposed to Giuliani, who happened to be mayor on 9-11. So that made him America's mayor, a hero whose great act of heroism was nothing fell on his head. <laughs> to paraphrase Donald Trump, I like mayors who don't let towers collapse. A few weeks ago, an old but very smoking gun emerged from the Nixon era when it came out that in 1968, when President Lyndon Johnson was trying to end the war in Vietnam, candidate Richard Nixon was actively, purposefully undermining the peace talks because he wanted the war to go on so he could have it as an election issue. You would think that the America First crowd would find that a bridge too far. Fuck no. <laughs> Dick Cheney once outed a CIA agent just to say fuck you to her husband. <laughs> Reagan sold weapons to Iran, the country they all want to bomb now, in brazen defiance of American law. And instead of being impeached, he was elevated to sainthood and now rides horses in heaven with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Why do Republicans get away with this? Why do they have patriotic immunity? America is like a dysfunctional family where the Democrats are the older, mature son who works hard and does everything right, but somehow is never good enough. And the Republicans are the young asshole son who's a fuck up, but no matter how many times he crashes the Camaro, daddy buys him a new one. <laughs> I know it's not really important, like which department stores are selling Ivanka's panty liners, but, you know, <laughs> all of America's intelligence agencies say a foreign power tampered with our election to favor the Republican, and they say also that they don't trust that Republican, our president, with our state secrets, and yet the theme of Trump's inaugural was America first. Please. His ego is first. His hotels are second. Russia's third. I'd be surprised if America made the top ten.